We have uh, we've been in John for some time now, and I, I, I don't know what effect fully it's had on your life to study the book of John. I do know what it has done to my own life, and for that I'm eternally grateful to the Father who through the Spirit instructs us of what His Word really means and the, and the deep meanings that are there for all those who will, are willing to mine for gold instead of raking for leaves, as John Piper says. We often rake for leaves, don't we? We, we study God's Word like we can scratch the surface and get enough. It's funny, I, d- I don't find that I, when I have my favorite food in front of me, I eat that way. Do you? Banana pudding? You know, I don't scratch at the surface. I dig down deep and I eat it. And I eat it and savor it and I eat it some more. And when I'm done, I'm hungry for more. I'm never satisfied for it. Uh, It leaves me with a hunger. And God's Word should be no less to us. And so we've been in this book now. Goodness, I don't want to be wrong, but I, I, I believe we set out on this journey in November of 2005. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was the first Sunday of November in 2005. And, and uh, as you can tell, we'll be here for a while. Um, I don't know how long, but we're, we're prone to take these periodic breaks. So um, one of those is coming up. I, I'm studying, and many of you know that, for a doctorate in expository preaching. Some of you will be really relieved about that. Thank God he's going to get better, <laughs> hopefully. They can fix him. One of the assignments that they've given me is to preach a, a contained 8 to 12 week series on a book of the Bible. <laughs> you can't do that in the book of John, obviously. And so I have selected to move to Jonah, an Old Testament prophet. And uh, we'll do that next week. I'm going to bring it into the section that we're in in verse uh, 30 where Jesus responds to his disciples. The woman leaves the well, and then Jesus responds with his disciples about what's about to take place. We're going to jump out of the book of John then and go to Jonah for about nine weeks. We're going to do the whole book in nine weeks. You'll you'll get a breath of fresh air. You'll be able to tell all your friends at work, we did a whole book of the Bible. And uh, then we'll jump back in John. And we'll, we'll jump right back in where we left off in verse 31 in this great chapter, because really there is a transition here. And we're actually in the middle of that transition, the bridge, if you would take it. One, one side was the conversation between Jesus and this woman of Samaria at the well. Then there's this bridge, which is in 27 through 30, when the disciples are literally passing her almost. You know, they're coming up and they see her there with Jesus talking. And just shortly after they arrive, she leaves. And Jesus talks with them personally. And then the other side of the, of the gulf, if you want to see it that way, is the, is the reaping of what they didn't sow. And, uh, and so we'll, we'll get back in there and talk about that after we finish with the prophet in Jonah. But look at the success that comes from the willingness of Jesus to take a break from his Jewish journeys and go to Samaria. This woman believes. I believe that by the end of the day, you will believe that she was saved at the well. And and the result of that is going to be a great harvest. And she was willing to do that. He was willing to go out of his way 
to go and find this one woman, an outcast in her society, to share the gospel with her. Immediate fruit. If, if, if I'm giving you the title of this message, it is the mission intentional, which has been our theme throughout John 4, fruit of evangelism. And specifically focusing on 27 through 30, the verses there in 27 through 30. Immediate fruit comes out of Jesus' evangelism, doesn't it? In this passage, he shares the gospel, she believes in him, and goes back to her hometown telling others about him. I mean, that's immediate. Don't you enjoy those kind of results? Don't you wish that your evangelistic endeavors bore fruit like that every time? That is a desire that we have, but maybe not necessarily a godly desire. By whatever measurement you measure the man, Adoniram Judson, he's a giant of a man. A missionary to Burma. Mentally, he was a mighty man. He, at the age of three, learned to read in a week. His mother said in her diary that she taught her son, young son to read to, to make his dad happy when he came home from work. And so in, three, in less than seven days, young Adoniram at the age of three learned to read. He then took navigation lessons, which in his day uh, were quite uh, strenuous and, and was hard exercise actually, even for a grown man. And he took these lessons at the age of ten and mastered uh, the, the sailing of a ship. Or a small vessel. He studied theology as a child. He entered Providence College, which is now Brown University, at the age of 17. Completed his undergraduate work in three years. If you measured his abilities in the mind, uh, maybe we, we can't even reach, hope to reach, his level of intense uh, abilities. He was, a, his friends said, a veritable bookworm. He spent hours reading. He mastered the Burmese language. Outside of Chinese, it is the most difficult language to acquire. He learned to write it. He learned to speak it. He translated an entire dictionary for them. He translated the whole Old Testament and New Testament in his years of ministry there in Burma. He was a scholar. He was a scholar that stood shoulder to shoulder with anyone in his day and probably looms large over any scholar in our day. And he was a great Christian. Undoubtedly, his greatest contribution to the people among who he chose to spend his life for Christ's sake was the translation of the Bible into their language. Spiritually, he again was a great peak in the Christian faith, not a small molehill. His father was a congregational preacher. His mother... Uh, through tears and pleadings, tried to lead him to Christ as a young man to no avail. I told you he studied theology. Everyone who studies theology is not a believer. Uh, there are many who study theology. Many in our conservative seminaries who are lost. And they're studying theology like you would study physics or math or science. And that's how Judson took the study up as a young man. He, he was uh, doing it, but at age 20 he was unconverted. He had, uh, he had been under the tutelage of a man there in Brown College, a young man about his age, 
Um, and this man led him into Jacob Emmis, led him into deism. And he took it up with great fervor. He believed in the deistic God. Basically, in short form, that is that there is a God that created the universe, separated himself, the great watchmaker. He wound it all up. It's running down now. He doesn't touch it, doesn't talk with it, doesn't have communion with his creatures. He's above. He's transcendent. He's outside of time completely and has no interaction with mankind at all. Judson bought this. He believed it and he became close companions with Jacob Emmis. And he graduated from Brown and began to travel. He traveled all over, just kind of living a life of uh, decadence, really. Studying some other things. He really wanted to be a theater writer. That was his whole, whole, whole life's aim and ambition. Parents at home crying for him every night. A congregational pastor who wept great tears and spent many hours trying to convince his son through letter and journal, please, son, return to the faith. But that's not how God intended to save this young man. Adoniram Judson, um, while he was traveling, had a great conversion. One night he was staying in a country inn in a small room, and adjacent to him's room was a room that contained a dying man that moaned all night and screamed out from his dying pain. It plagued young Adoniram. At 20, he was unconverted and knew that he had been taught about hell. And knew and began to wonder there that night. I wonder if this man is a believer. If he dies, what will happen to his soul? These are not thoughts that a deist should have, but Adoniram was under the hand of God. And he laid awake all night, scared to death for this man, scared to death for his own soul. He arose early the next morning and went in to speak with the inn owner. And the man apologized, you know, I'm sorry that you had to suffer through that all night. Um, it, was, it was a hard night, but the gentleman now has died. He even offered to give him his money back for the night's stay. And I Naram could care less about the money. He wanted to know about the man. And he asked, who was this man? Do you know him? He said he was a brilliant young student from Providence College. His name was Jacob Emmis. The man that led Adoniram away from the faith into deism. Laid plagued on his deathbed. Adoniram froze. After all these years of prayer from his parents, after all these messages he must have heard his dad preach, the thing that converted young Adoniram was in his heart and in his soul, he began to cry out. He was lost. 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 And I am lost. I'm lost. He left and quickly enrolled in Andover Theological Seminary where he sought God and pardoned for his soul. And by God's grace... Adoniram Judson was converted while studying in the seminary. After his conversion, he planned to live a life in his own words that pleased the Lord. That's all he cared about. Please the Lord. 
In 1809, the same year he joined the Congregational Church, he became burdened for mission work. He found some friends in Williams College, the founding place of the Haystack Revivals. And in a Haystack meeting one night, he committed to go across the seas and find the lost and reach them for Christ. That they might not perish lost like his friend Jacob Emmis. And so, he set out to prepare himself for this ministry. While preparing, he found a wife. A young lady, he met her and spent about a month with her, long enough to convince him he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. Her name was Anne. He wrote a letter, it's a great compelling letter, to her dad, who he had never met, by the way. He wrote a letter and said, Are you willing to give your, your daughter away to a man that will move across the seas and you'll never see her again in this life? And do you have the faith in the sovereign God to believe that one day you'll be reunited with her in a new world? If you do then I'd like to marry your daughter. (laughs) A salesman he was not. (laughs) But burdened with the gospel he was. And so he married Anne. And this started their journey. Just a few days after they were married, (coughs) they moved away to India first. And on that 114 day journey on the seas, he was converted to Baptist belief. Uh, He was convinced that the right expression of the faith was to be baptized as a believer. And when he touched foot in India, he found a good Baptist who was willing to baptize him in obedience to Christ. And William Carey became a great influence on his life, but the doors would not open. He was so convicted, think of this, about his convictions and how they differed from his church that had sent him, the Congregational Church, that he sent his papers back to the Congregational uh, Conference They revoked his missions license by his request. He lost all of his money. Anything they were going to pay him, they kept. And now he and his young bride are on the mission field with no support. They struggled to find support from the Baptists who weren't forthcoming because who knows if he'll stick with us, you know. And so, much to the dismay of William Carey, this young 24-year-old inexperienced missionary set sail for Burma an unreached empire that hated everyone who was a Christian. They had slaughtered people on their beaches. And here he goes with his 24-year-old self, untrained, with a passion to reach the lost, and his 23-year-old bride in tow. (laughs) He headed there, and he labored there. Matter of fact, he labored there 38 years. He returned to the United States after 33 years for a short, brief time simply to deposit his young children in America where they'd be safe. And then he returned back to the island he loved. It's interesting to me, you know, this man hated his life. In his own words, he hated his life in this world. He was a seed that fell to the ground and died and he filled up the suffering of Christ in Burma. His life bore much fruit. I can't help but think that if Judson were alive today, he would say it was all worth it. Three dead wives, 13 children, seven seven of them never lived past two. Most of them died in the early months of their lives. Seven children dead. Three wives, two of them died during his life, one just after he died. But he suffered through the loss of the loves of his life. 
The death of his mother and father, which he didn't attend their funerals. The death of his brother, which he never saw buried. He lost it all. He gave away his monetary wealth to the mission. He cut his $6,000 yearly salary down by two quarters. He lived on basics, and that's it. He consumed himself with the translation of the Word of God, and he shared his faith faithfully for six years with no converts. None. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you willing to labor for six years? Lose all this world has to give you and see no one converted. It's it's simple to serve God when the fruit hangs low in the trees and it's ripe for the picking. And you come in literally standing on the shoulders of great people who've given their lives for the gospel before you. But are you willing to go? Are you willing to share the gospel? Whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be in your place of business, wherever it is, six years and face ridicule and suffering and no converts. Adoniram Judson, he did have this burning desire and he did share with no even no converts. His first convert was saved and baptized after six years of ministry. That wasn't the end of his suffering. That was really the beginning. Prison awaited Adoniram for being a British spy, which he was not a British spy. Had no contact with the British, actually outside of mission, missionaries. 17 months he lived in a prison sharing the gospel with fellow prisoners. At night, they had this uh, method of torture where they put bamboo shoots around the leg and they lift hoisted the man up off the ground except for his shoulders and his head. And they hung in this position all night. The prisoners that did survive said that Adoniram shared the gospel without end during the night, sang hymns to God quoted scripture and prayed for the Burmese that they'd be converted. 17 months, his wife, pregnant with child, part of that time, walked two miles every day through the mosquito-infested countryside, emaciated herself to beg and plead, let my husband go. He's not a spy. To no avail. She had her child there while she was at the prison visiting him. The jailer had this great mercy and it really was a mercy. She, all of her milk dried up because she was so emaciated. And he allowed Adoniram to take that young girl, Marie Elizabeth, into the village once a day to beg the local women to nurse feed his baby. You know what that wife said? Oh, the ways of God are unknown to us oftentimes, but the pain we suffer is a small thing in comparison to glory, that someone would be saved is our prayer and that these sufferings would be made into righteousness for the name of Christ. What an amazing faith. They had already lost two children. This was their third child. Miraculously, he was let loose from the prison. 
His wife died right after he was released. And his baby died six months later. Are you willing to labor at all costs with no converts or very few converts so that others might be saved? April the 10th, 1834, he married Sarah. They had eight children, five lived. Eleven years later, Sarah became ill. He left his three youngest children behind in Burma. And he and Sarah died. Uh, he and Sarah left on a voyage. That was the way they cured the diseases in those days was to take a trip on an ocean vessel. They thought it had some, the sea, the salt air cleansed the person. They sailed and she died. They were sailing for America and when they, when they, when they rounded the horn of Africa, she died. And he buried his wife and mother of his children on St. Helena Island a grave he could never visit. He left her there. Sailed to America where he met a third wife who he did love. Amazingly, she was 29, he was 57. But Emily would write about him, he's the greatest man I've ever known. He loves the Lord. He prays for his family. They had one child. One child during Adoniram's life. In April the 3rd, 1850, Adoniram was struck again with an often consuming disease that turned out to be malaria, but he was placed on the Aristide Marie and began to sail. Again, they thought it would help him. He was in terrible pain and he was vomiting often. And then would go unconscious. He would awake to vomit more and go unconscious. Sounds a lot like Jacob Emmis. His last words that were recorded were, How few that die this hard. How few there are that die this hard. But those on the ship were impressed by this man of faith. He never cursed God. As was often the case, he never cried out for mercy. He longed for a home that was waiting for him in a new world where he'd be united with his Savior. He died on that trip and he was buried. He was buried at sea. No fanfare, no parade, no welcome home. No proper burial. Fifteen minutes after the hour of four, he was let down into the sea. Ten days later, Emily had their second child, and that child died at birth. She returned to the United States, America, into New England, and she died shortly thereafter. Why do I tell you this long and drawn out emotional story? Because when you get to the end of the story of the woman of well, it's easy to get caught up in the early conversion of someone you share the gospel with. Jesus batted a hundred. He shared the gospel and she believed immediately. It doesn't happen that way often. 
there are those who labor a lifetime for a few. Adoniram was blessed to see that one convert, and it did multiply even in his lifetime, much against some popular rumors about him. He saw a lot of converts in his ministry late in his years. 38 years of ministry, and he died at sea and was buried at sea. No fanfare, but I tell you this, today there are 3,700 Baptist churches in Burma which draw their lineage back to one man who dared to go, who dared to say, I must needs go to Burma. And he went and he lost it all. And he died, as Jesus would say in John 12, as a grain of wheat that falls to the ground, he died. And he bore fruit. 1.9 million Christians attend those Baptist churches. He didn't grab low-hanging fruit. He scaled up into the heights of the highest of trees, the most dangerous of places, and he plucked a few ripe pieces of fruit. But from those pieces of fruit came the backbone for an entire nation to become what today is considered by many to be a Christian nation. That was the result of his willingness to die. That was the result of 62-year life and then he died. Short life. Short life. I wonder if anyone in this congregation is willing to go and die so that others might live. Are you willing to be intentional in reaching the lost world around you so that God might reap the harvest of souls through your life? Jesus was intentional. He broke through social and religious barriers. He penetrated the heart with convicting words about sin and He offered the water of life, eternal life. And today, I'm asking you, are you willing to go on this same intentional ministry which always ends in fruit? It always ends in fruit. Whether it's one or whether it's a 1,000 or whether it's a 100,000 or whether it's 1.9 million, His Word does not return to Him void. It always does what it was intended to do. And so I turn my focus from you for a moment, Christian, to you lost man because there are lost people in this congregation. And I would say to you, if you're lost, you must confess Christ as your Savior. We see that in 29. I know that it's, it looks as if she's questioning Him being the Christ. But in actuality, when you read the story and you see in later verses in 39 through 41 that the people in that village believed on her account and now we no longer believe because of your words. We believe because we've heard Him and we know He's the Savior of the world. I'm led to believe she gave confession of Jesus Christ when she went back. And so she... If you will be saved like she was saved, you must confess Him as Lord. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you and I and anyone who does that will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that your confession is made to salvation. Romans 10, 9 through 2. 10, I'm sorry. The Samaritan woman left her water pot and she went back to confess Christ. If you'll be saved, you must confess Him. 
Confession is not the cause of salvation. Confession is the result of salvation. And it always happens in the Scripture. There's no such thing as an anonymous Christian in the Bible. It doesn't exist. It never existed. And it never intended to exist in our world. And so, I'm asking you, lost man, have you confessed Him as Savior? Nicodemus came to Christ in John 3. He came... He was asking the religious questions. He was the moral man, yet he leaves unrepentive. He's mentioned two more times in the Gospel of John, and none of it is with a confession of faith. I don't know if he was saved. Maybe. Maybe not. But this Samaritan woman came seeking water from a well. She was converted because Christ said, I have water which you know nothing about. It gives eternal life. It springs up for a fountain inside of you. And she believed Him. And she was converted. She was not religious. She was not pure. She was not your average good person. She was the most based of her society. She was saved. If you'll be saved, you must confess Him. If you confess Christ, you will radically be changed. Verse 28. She came for one purpose. She toted this heavy jar for one reason. And it was so that she could come to the well... And draw water. And yet this is what she leaves when she says. She leaves it. She forgets what she was there for. Her life has changed. Completely. This conversation has been about water from beginning to end. She came to draw water. Jesus asked for some water. Jesus tells her, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. She says, give me this water. It's all about water. And yet when she becomes a Christian, she forgets about water. She forgets about her earthly needs. And she says, I'm going to confess Him and I'm going to draw others to Him. Her whole mindset changes and your mindset will change too. If you sit here today and say, I've confessed Him but my life's no different, you need to question your salvation. You need to wrestle with it. You may not be saved. There are many in that day who will say to Him, Lord, Lord, and by the way, as I told the children last week, the repeating of a person's name denotes in the Scripture a thought of knowledge and knowing them. So in Matthew 7, when Jesus says there are those standing before Him in judgment who say, Lord, Lord, they believe they know who He is. And He says, I don't know who you are. Don't rest on some past experience where you walked an aisle or was baptized in some water. If your life is unchanged, you need to wrestle with salvation today. You don't need to go back confident of anything except that I need to know Him so that my life might be changed. Life change is always Jesus' focus. If you look at the end of His life from John 12 to John 17, He repeats it over and over again. I saved them so that they might be one with Me as I am with the Father. I saved them so they might love one another as I love them. I have saved them that they might be in the world and not of the world. He repeats this change of life over and over. It becomes His emphasis. And if your life is unchanged, then there's some thought that must go into, am I really a Christian? The water of Christ satisfies this woman. She leaves her jar and she runs to tell others about eternal life. The confession of the mouth follows new birth. It's proof of true, con- it's proof of true conversion. 
I compare it, and the scripture does, to birthing a baby. Being in the delivery room for two births, I don't, I'm not an expert by any stretch, okay? But at least in our case, the doctor looks for one thing when that baby's born. First and foremost, he wants to hear that baby cry. You know why? Because if it, that baby doesn't cry, it's hard, there's a place in the heart, a, a divider that must close to keep oxygenated blood from unoxygenated blood. That happens at birth. The first screams show that that's happened. The lungs have inflated. And now that baby is processing its own blood through the oxygen cycle and it will live. That cry is what that doctor's looking for. The baby comes with plugs in its nose and all these things and phlegm all in its throat. Our first baby, Hannah Grace, didn't want to cry when she was born. She scared us. She was blue, not crying. And the doctors took her over and they laid her down and they massaged her and they patted her. And oh, what a beautiful sound when they gasp for air and start to cry. Confession of the mouth is gasping for air in the Christian life. You're born by the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You don't become a Christian by first confessing. You become a Christian because God birthed you through the Spirit. And when you're born, you cry out to Him as your Savior. We emphasize confession to the point that we think that's what makes a man a Christian. No. The Spirit of God makes a man a Christian. You can sit here until you die saying, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And yet if the Spirit of God doesn't birth you a new life, you will die without Him. That's why Adoniram Judson went to Burma. Not so people would pray a sinner's prayer, but so the Spirit of God through the Gospel might be unleashed on a nation and so that many might be redeemed. That's why he went. That's why you go to work every day. That's why you go to class every day. That's why you walk across the street in your neighborhood and tell someone about Jesus not so they say some childish prayer, not so they get baptized and come down an aisle, but so that you might see God reap His fruit. You reap what you did not sow. You've entered a harvest which you did not prepare. That's the words of Jesus about the Samaritans. You know who prepared it? Do you know who prepared the harvest, who worked for the harvest, who was ready to reap the harvest? The Father is seeking such to worship Him in spirit and in truth. God prepared the harvest. The question is, do you want to go in the labor field? The harvest is plentiful. And the laborers are few. And so I'm asking you today, saved man, will you go into the harvest field and preach the gospel that the babies might cry? Or will you not? They're going to be saved. They will be saved. He will not lose any of them. The question is, will you be a vessel used for the kingdom or not? And lost man, will you confess him? 
Will you believe in Him? Beg and plead that God might save you. Jesus says, all that come to me, I will by no means cast them out. If you come to Him, He will not cast you out. If you confess Christ, He will change your life and you will have a true burden for the lost. Gratitude does not lead to a burden for the lost. You won't be motivated to share the gospel because you're thankful Jesus saved you. Knowing Jesus only, knowing Him, doesn't lead you to a burden for the lost. That makes you hungry for more knowledge about Him. Satisfaction with Him doesn't make you want to share the gospel, really. It just makes you want more of what has satisfied you. The love of Christ in you makes you have a burden for the lost. You know why? Because He loves the lost. And He gave Himself for them. For Christ's... Listen to what Paul said. You want to know what your motivation for evangelism is? It's not that somebody prays a prayer. That's, that will never motivate you. It won't. I, I get confused when churches brag about how many baptisms they had. It doesn't motivate anybody. If anything, it gives pride in the wrong people. Listen to what motivated Paul. This is what will motivate you. For Christ's love compels us. If you don't have the love of Christ... You won't care about the lost. For the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and was raised again. And I now am Judson lived that life and I'm asking, will you live that life? Will we as Grace Fellowship live that life? Lost person here, would you confess Him and believe And join us in living this life. The zeal for evangelism comes from the love of God. She confessed Him and she had a burden for the lost. And she repeats the words of her Savior. He said to her earlier in the conversation, If you knew who it was, you would ask me for water. And I would give it to you. And He even invites her. He tells her at one point to come and Drink from this water. And so I say to you that the Spirit of God and the church say, Come. And let the one who hears this message say, Come. And let the one who hears the message say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price come. Those are the words of John. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, where did he get this style of evangelism of using water? John chapter 4, the ministry done for the woman at the well tells him the water of life is available. Come and drink. So the question is, lost man, our lady, our child, will you come? May we never get so callous as to think that we have no responsibility in the area of belief. We do. The Bible's very clear. Believe. It's a command. Believe. Jesus wouldn't give a command if He didn't expect you to respond to it. That's why unbelief is the sin that damns men to hell. 
Because you've been commanded to come. If you don't come, it's rebellion. It's treason against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so I say to you, come to the water and drink. And you'll have eternal life. And Christian, are you content to simply have eternal life? Or do you have the love of Christ which compels you to walk across the street, speak to the person in the cubicle next to you, go to lunch with the man or woman that you might share the gospel with them? Are you convinced and are you convicted through the love of Christ that if He calls me, I'm going? I want to challenge you to this, especially those who are not married yet. I want to challenge you to this. Say to the Lord, I'm going to the world that has never heard of you. And if you don't want me to go, stop me. Because we are selfish beings and we will always choose to stay in the United States. And don't go to England unless he calls you. And don't go to some modernized country where it's convenient. It's a vacation. Would you go to Burma? Would you go to Thailand? Would you go to the 1040 window where millions are dying every year without the gospel? Professing belief in the Muslim faith. Will you go there? And older and ready to retire, I'm going to give you the same challenge. Say to God, Lord, I've worked all these years. We have enough to live. We're leaving this country. We're forsaking it all. And we're going overseas. And if I die there and they bury me at sea, it's worth it all if one believes. I'm telling you, the world will change with that spirit. If God don't want you there, He'll stop you. (laughs) Don't worry. But go. Go. And write us letters and inspire us to believe more in this gospel we preach. I want to ask you to bow your head. I know we're running late. I realize that. I also realize that there's nothing more important that you can do in this moment. We are, we're going to sing one song. I'm not going to ask anybody to come up front. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I am going to ask you to listen to the words of this song. I am going to ask you, don't sing. Don't sing. Let them sing. They're going to sing, I stand amazed in the presence. And so, lost man, the invitation is here. You came here lost. You don't have to go home that way. You say, I'm convicted and I'm convinced and I'm crying out. Will he save me? Yes. Save you. He will save you. 
He never fails. So cry out to him now. Saved man and lady and child, deal with your Lord. Prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper. And more even than that, prepare yourself to die somewhere for the gospel, whether it's Jacksonville or it's Burma. Prepare yourself to die somewhere for the gospel. I'm going to pray and, and, and they're going to lead us. But, but, but I want to say Aaron made mention that if you're here today and you're saved, there's really no point in pride because he chooses those who are the hardest to save. I really believe that. He chooses the ragamuffins like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. He chooses the failure like the Samaritan woman. You may be here full of sin and say, He can't save me. He saved this adulterous woman. He saved her. He can save you. He saved Paul after he murdered Christians. He can save you. Matter of fact, if you're the worst in this room, <laughs> you're the one who I think he, he's after, seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth, who will not take pride in their own righteousness, but know it was all him. So if that's you, come. I'm going to pray. They're going to sing, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, in heaven, these verses have really and truly, they've filtered into my heart, and they've changed me. I'm not burdened enough for the lost, and it's because I don't have, don't have your love enough and don't choose to display your love. Lord, give me fresh, new, spiritual vigor and stamina that I might go to the lost in Calhoun County with this blessed gospel. Good news. Jesus Christ has come. He is God in the flesh and He has lived perfectly by every jot and tittle of the law so that none of it would pass away, but all of it would be fulfilled. All of your promises are yes in Him. All of them are completed and fulfilled and we wait for nothing else. The sacrifice once for all has been given. And now you, Jesus, have risen from the dead and now are seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, preparing for us. Oh, that we might love others the way you love us. Lord, as we sing and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, the communion we have with you, May we truly confess our sins and may we truly be united with you in this worship. As we sing, as, as, as they sing, as we confess, Lord, hear our prayers. Heal us. Heal us. And make us love you. Make us love you. Lord, we love you. We truly do. As much as Peter confessed it on the seashore that day, we confess we love you. As much as the man fell down and said, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief, that's us. That's us. Help us now as we sing and as we confess and as we take the supper.
It's in your name we pray.